As we've begun this uh, series on uh, the book of Joshua, there's a text that we began to look at last week, uh, Joshua 1, 10 through 18, and uh, I want to draw this passage uh, to your attention again this Sunday. And so as always, I invite you to follow along in the scriptures as I read uh, Joshua chapter 1, reading verses 10 through 18. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp, and command the people, prepare your provisions. For within three days you are to pass over this Jordan, to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you, and they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses." Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him, shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Uh, There was uh, an entry in a church newsletter that I came across many years ago. I clipped it out and I have saved it over many years. It's a little piece that was simply entitled, The Church Alive. And um, I want to read to you just a a shortened and edited version of the piece, a piece which contrasts live churches with dead ones. Here's how it goes. Live churches prayerfully seek to improve and plan for the future. Dead churches are mired in the past. Live churches have lots of children. Dead churches are usually very quiet. Live churches generously support mission endeavors. Dead churches keep what funds they have largely to themselves. Live churches' expenses and outlays always seem to exceed their income. Dead churches guard what funds they have. Live churches are earnest about worship. Dead churches simply go through the motions. Live churches focus on people Dead churches focus on running programs. Live churches are marked by a unity of the spirit. Dead churches are marked by quarreling and bickering. Live churches are filled with tithers. Dead churches are filled with tippers. Live churches evangelize. Dead churches fossilize. I want to be part of a live church. I want to be part of a church that is marked by a love for Jesus Christ and for the Word of God. I want to be part of a church that is marked by a genuine 
Holy Spirit kind of intensity. I want to be part of a church that is making a difference for Christ and his kingdom here in this community and other places around the world. I want to be part of a church that embraces the kinds of values and the kind of focus that is here in Joshua chapter 1. As I introduced the text last week, I said that a church that is serious about moving ahead for Christ, a a church that is serious about evangelism and mission and outreach, will be marked by five basic values. We looked at the first two last week. Values that mark a church moving ahead for God, and the first one is that church will be a congregation serious about personal holiness. When individual believers are concerned about holiness of life, it will be reflected in the church. And I asked the question last week, what is biblical holiness? And there are a lot of ways that you could express it. There are a lot of ways I suppose it could be defined. But I defined it basically this way. Holiness is a daily consecration of your life to live to the glory of God. A consecration of all of life from one end to the other. Let me give you some examples. A consecration, for example, reflected in what you say. Not giving way to gossip. Not using coarse and vulgar and offensive language. A consecration reflected in what you say. It'll be a consecration reflected in your disposition to other people. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, the words of Jesus. Be ye kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. The words of the Apostle Paul, your disposition toward others, kindness, love, not jealousy, not vindictiveness. Holiness is a consecration of life reflected in your moral purity, in sexual matters, for example, in your business dealings. Holiness of life is a consecration reflected in your generosity, in a generosity of your funds, in a generosity of your time and talents, helping those around you in various ways as the need arises. And so as I said last week, biblical holiness is not a checklist of do's and don'ts. I sort of grew up that way. Some of you did as well. It's a dead end. It's harmful. Biblical holiness is not those sorts of things, but holiness is a genuine desire to honor God above all things and to love one's neighbor as one's self. And so we as a congregation, as individuals, are called to pursue holiness. The book of Hebrews chapter 12 says, pursue holiness without which no one shall see the Lord. The Bible's very clear on that. And when holiness of life is not our pursuit, then what Paul says in Ephesians 4 and verse 30, the Holy Spirit is grieved. His working in our midst then will be hindered. Gospel ministry then cannot flourish. And so a church that's moving ahead for God is a church that is serious about personal holiness. And then last week also I touched on on this point. A church that's moving ahead for God Uh, is serious about the matter of obedience. And we noticed this at uh, the end of the text in verse 16, where the people of Israel say to Joshua, command us and we will obey. Send us and we will go. 
And if you remember, we looked at that um, story from the book of 1 Samuel chapter 15 from the life of King Saul, where Saul disobeys the command of the Lord. And Samuel confronts him, and at the end of the account, the Lord through Samuel says to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. And disobedience is rebellion. It is like the sin of witchcraft, Samuel says. It is idolatry of the worst sort because you make yourself the authority. You make yourself God. What you decide, what you think, determines the way things should be. That is idolatry. A church that is serious about the matter of obedience. Well, here in this text, we find a group of people who are passionate about obedience. We find a group of people where there is a heart loyalty to the endeavor that God has called them to. There is no substitute for obedience. There is no substitute for loyalty to, to the cause of Christ. You see, you need to understand that obedience to God's call, obedience to God's purpose in your life, his call to kingdom work, his call to kingdom ministry, is actually the road to genuine joy and fulfillment when you give yourself to following the will of God. I can testify that that's so. Since the end of 1995, Laurel and I have lived in North Central North Dakota. Minot first, and then Botna. We've lived for 28 years. We're now going on, we're in year 29 of living in this part of the world. And uh, speaking for myself, if I had the choice, I never would have moved to North Dakota. Not ever. Not ever. Um, if you had asked me years ago, uh, and this is back in high school, um, I remember distinctly in high school, if you had asked me to, to rank all 50 states uh, in order of preference of where to live, Minnesota would have been number one, no question about it. And I don't know the exact order of the next ones, but North Dakota, without question, was number 50. <laughs> to me, North Dakota was barren, it was isolated. Uh, it was lacking in various ways. I can remember as a kid, I once got with my folks as far west as Devil's Lake, and I wasn't impressed by anything I saw. Grand Forks, Fargo, Devil's Lake, none of it. Well, I grew up in uh, the Twin Cities in a major metro area. Uh, my wife, Laurel, grew up in Chicago. Oh, we love big city life. You have all the uh, cultural opportunities, and major league sports teams are all around. I mean, you can't beat that. Uh, I love the lakes. I love the trees that were everywhere. But I moved to North Dakota because I knew it was God's will. And you know what I have found out to be true? When you obey God, when you follow his leading, when you step out in faith, he creates an inner joy. He creates a sense of, yes, this is where I should be. And so I can honestly say to each of you this morning, I'm here not just because God wants me to be here, 
but I'm here because I want to be here. God produces that in the heart and life. When you take him at his word, when you answer his call, when you follow his leading. And so I've experienced in this part of the world for now in the 29th year, I have experienced joys and blessings that I could not have experienced anywhere else out of the will of God. And so, so let me ask you, what is God's will for your life? Think about it first in, in, in the larger, the macro sense of the word. So when you look at the big picture, what is God's will for you? What is God's calling for you? Taking the larger view of things. And what is God's will for you maybe in the particulars that you're facing now in your own circumstances? What is he calling you to? How is he directing you through the word? And we're talking here about congregational life, so... What about Grace Lutheran Brethren Church? How is God calling you in regard to the ministry of this congregation? How is God directing your heart in, in ministry? How is he calling you to joyfully engage with his kingdom work um, here in this place? And so success, personally, and as a congregation, comes as we discover the will of God and then in the power of the Holy Spirit, enter into it with all of our hearts. That's a review from last Sunday. Number three. Leads to value number three. A church that is serious about moving ahead for God is serious about unity. That's a big bulk of this text, starting actually in the 12th verse, and running through verse 15 and, and actually really through the end of the chapter. And you notice beginning in verse 12, Joshua addresses a portion of the 12 tribes. He doesn't speak to all of them, but he speaks to two and a half of them. You notice he addresses, verse 12, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. What is it that he has to say? Why is he singling out these two and a half tribes for a special address? Well, to understand it, we go back to the book of Numbers chapter 32. Numbers chapter 32, it was soon time for the Israelites to cross over the Jordan River. Uh, Moses was at the end of his ministry. He knew his time of leadership was coming to an end. Uh, his time of departure was at hand. He was going to die, and then Joshua was going to be the leader who would take over. And so the people of Israel have made their way now. They're on the east bank of the Jordan River. Across there, you can see the city of Jericho and maybe some of the other fortresses on the west bank. They're going to be crossing over the Jordan River into the land that God promised uh, to Abraham and to his descendants. But as they looked at this land, two and a half tribes said, this is really great land on the east bank of the Jordan. I mean, it's good for farming. It is excellent for cattle raising. Boy, we would love to stay right here on the east bank where we are. And so the leaders of two and a half of the tribes came to Moses with a request. And here it is in verse 5. And they said, if we have found favor in your sight... Let this land, and by this land they mean the east bank of the Jordan. Let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. 
That was their request. Well, Moses is deeply concerned by that kind of request. And so notice in verse 6, Moses said to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to the war while you sit here? Why will you discourage? And I want you to keep that word discourage in mind. I'm going to come back to it. Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? Your fathers did this. And Moses, in the next verses, gives them a little history reminder. Remember what happened 40 years ago? We as a people came to the borders of the land. We sent 12 spies in. The spies came back with a bad report. And what did they do? They discouraged everybody. Oh, the land is too big. The cities are too large. It's too dangerous. We're never going to make it. And discouragement set in, and the people refused to enter the land. And God then, in judgment, caused them to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. And what Moses is saying is, by you saying, you two and a half tribes, we'll take land here. Uh, God bless the rest of you. Okay, what are you doing? You're bringing discouragement to them. They're not going to want to go in either. And God's judgment is going to come upon us in a more severe way than even before, Moses says. Well, notice verse 14. Behold, you have risen in your father's place a brood of sinful men to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, there's this obedience matter again, isn't it? He will again abandon them in the wilderness and you will destroy all these people. You two and a half tribes will be responsible for all the bad stuff that's going to unfold with the kind of attitude that you have. Well, notice the response of the leaders of the two and a half tribes. Then they came near to Moses and said, We will build sheepfolds here on the east bank for our livestock and cities for our little ones. But we will take up arms, ready to go before the people of Israel until we have brought them to their place. And our little ones shall live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel has gained his inheritance. All right, what we will do is we will cross the Jordan River. We'll leave uh, our little kids at home, the mothers and grandmas to take care of them. But we, as the two and a half tribes, we will cross the river. We will fight shoulder to shoulder with you. We will not go back home to our land on the East Bank until every last Jewish family has their land, has their inheritance, and every enemy is defeated. That's what we pledge to you, Moses. Well, here's what Moses says to them, starting in verse 20. So Moses said to them, if you will do this, if you will take up arms to go before the Lord for the war, and every armed man of you will pass over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then after that you shall return and be free of obligation to the Lord and to Israel, and this land, the East Bank, shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. That's the story where that little phrase comes from. And so here in our text, in Joshua chapter 1, as they're getting ready to cross the river, 
Joshua calls the leaders of Gad and Manasseh and half the tribe of, 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 of Gad and Reuben and half the tribe of Manasseh. And he says to them, remember the conversation you had with Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Remember what you promised. Remember that we're all in this together. And their response is in the end of the chapter, all that you command us we're going to do, send us, we'll go, we will obey everything you tell us, just as we pledged to Moses. So they didn't send the other tribes across the river and say, God bless you, I hope you win some victories, but we got our land on the east side. We're fine, we're happy, we're content. We'll just stay here. Goodbye, maybe we'll see you someday. But they came across the river with them and fought shoulder to shoulder all the years of the military campaign and won the victory. And then and only then, after a number of years, did they return to their homes on the east bank. So, this text, this story, has serious implications for the church. And what I mean by that is unity is not peripheral. Unity of a congregation is absolutely essential. Uh, let me read a little statement from uh, an author by the name of Dale Davis. He wrote a little brief study on Joshua. And uh, here's what he put about this matter of unity. He said, unity doesn't mean that we all have to feel sticky and gooey about each other. But it does mean that we care enough that we don't want any of the Lord's children to get discouraged. I wanted you to remember that word from Deuteronomy 32. Now, when you think about disunity in a congregation, what do we usually think about? What we usually think about is terms of people who are always griping, people who are complaining and gossiping. We think about an uncooperative spirit. We think about factions. Uh, we think about a little group of malcontents. All right, so, so those kinds of things in a church definitely create disunity, make no mistake about it, and we need to, as a body of believers, guard against those kinds of attitudes. But there is a disunity far more subtle that Deuteronomy, or that Numbers 32 and our text in Joshua 1 hints at. And the issue is, namely this, uninvolvement creates disunity. So think about it. So let's think about it in congregational terms. Uninvolvement down the road brings to fruition, sadly, disunity. Let's start with Sunday morning worship. Not being a regular participant on Sunday mornings creates disunity. Book of Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25 says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing, but be all the more diligent about gathering together, especially as you see the coming of Christ draw ever closer. So you think about attending on a Sunday morning. Now, some obviously can't attend. There's chronic physical conditions. Uh, there's disabilities. Uh, people get ill. There, there's all kinds of legitimate reasons for not being here, traveling for business, um, vacation time, those sorts of things. I'm not talking about those kinds of things. But I'm talking about a hit-and-miss participation when you're kind of around. A hit-and-miss participation. Because what it does is 
for those that are here, what people end up saying is, where's so-and-so? I saw them in town this week. I know they're around. wonder why they aren't in church. And so when there is non-involvement, even starting with a simple thing as a Sunday morning, people begin to get discouraged, and then it's like, well, what's wrong with him? What's wrong with her? And there starts to be then a spirit of disunity that Satan will stir up in those kinds of conditions. Because what happens is when somebody's hit and miss, what they're saying is, it's not important enough for me to be there with my church family. You folks aren't a priority to me. I've got other things. I'll come when it's convenient. That tends to a great amount of disunity because it's not important enough for me to make it a priority to be present. That's where disunity can spring from. What about finding a place of service in the congregation? Rather than sitting on the east bank of the Jordan, are all of us crossed over to the west bank? Are we engaged in ministry and service? Paul says there's a variety of gifts, but there's the same Holy Spirit. And so each of us is called to be engaged in the body life of the church. So think about it for yourself. Are you just here Sunday morning? Is that it? Are you ever in a Sunday school class? Are you ever in a Bible study? Uh, Are you volunteering for any of the ministries of the church? If not, this is what this text is talking about. You're sitting on the East Bank. You're bringing discouragement And that sort of thing tends to disunity. And so God calls each of us to cross over to the West Bank of the Jordan to be engaged in ministry. Let me read you something from uh, Dr. R. Kent Hughes, who for many years uh, was pastor at uh, the Wheaton College Church. Uh, He wrote a book um, about 40 years ago now called Disciplines of a Godly Man. And he uh, had a little unit on church participation for men and church involvement. And uh, here's what he writes in the book. Church attendance is infected with a malaise of conditional loyalty, which has produced an army of ecclesiastical hitchhikers. The hitchhiker's thumb says, you buy the car, pay for the repairs and upkeep and insurance, fill the car with gas, and I'll ride with you. But if you have an accident, you're on your own, and I'll probably sue. So it is with the credo of many of today's church attenders. You go to meetings, you serve on boards and committees, you grapple with the issues and do the work of the church and pay the bills, and I'll come along for the ride. But if things do not suit me, I'll criticize and complain and probably bail out. My thumb is always out for a better ride. And then he ends the section this way. He says, church hitchhikers have a telling vocabulary. They say things like, I go to X and X, such and such church. Or I attend, but never I belong to or I'm a member of. Unity. Involvement. Engagement. And so here at this congregation, like any Christian congregation, we're called to ministry. We're called to service. God is calling us to be a dynamic church filled with his Holy Spirit, filled with a love for Christ, a concern for souls, a heart for the Great Commission. And so if our church is going to stay strong and if our church is going to move ahead, in the days to come. It needs to be marked by a spirit-given 
unity. It needs to be marked by a spirit of oneness together in Christ, a heart-to-heart relationship in all things. And so we have been given the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. And so then may we then, with unity of heart and with purpose, together cross the river and enter into the purposes that God has for us.